Some entrepreneurs believe that tapping capital markets on Wall Street, going public with an initial public offering, that magic IPO, puts their business expansion and financing needs on easy street. Yet, some are finding out that the actual experience is more queasy than easy. It's no fun at all, and we need to turn that around. And here to help us do that so that you can be more successful in that area is Mr. Adam J. Epstein. She's a respected and trusted business advisor, an Ivy League business expert, best-selling author, and no-nonsense lawyer. She's Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Whether you're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur working for someone else, I want to give you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Because no one likes getting blindsided by what you don't know but somehow should or getting stuck paying for it later. Think of it as a mini MBA and school of hard knocks wrapped in one and on steroids. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. Adam J. Epstein. He's a firm believer that many post-IPO financing challenges are rooted in some very common pre-IPO mistakes. And I want to know why. Because if you're not a public company yet, but you want to be, now's the time to avoid those pitfalls. And even if you are a public company, tracing those root causes help you identify opportunities for fixes. And so as a result, today's guest can have a profound impact on your business. But before we get started, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Adam, his remarkable career, and why he's eminently qualified to talk about today's topic, how smart, emerging, and mid-cap companies avoid post-IPO financing pitfalls. Adam is a nationally recognized small-cap expert and advisor to boards of pre-IPO and small-cap companies through his firm, Third Creek Advisors, LLC. Prior to founding Third Creek Advisors, he was a long-tenured institutional investor on why some small and mid-cap companies are more successful in their post-IPO financing efforts than others. He speaks monthly at corporate governance and investor conferences and is a Distinguished National Association of Corporate Director Board Leadership Fellow. That's a mouthful and a faculty member. He's also the small cap contributing director for Directorship Magazine and, as if that wasn't enough, the author of the best-selling book, The Perfect Corporate Board, a handbook for mastering the unique challenges of small cap companies. I've been reading his book, and I love the practical tips that he sprinkles throughout the pages. It's a real treat to have him here. Welcome to Business Confidential, Adam. Thanks for uh, having me, Hannah. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure, believe me. I'm fascinated by your book, The Perfect Corporate Board. Tell me, what inspired you to write it? Yeah, you know, as you referenced in the intro, Hannah, I I co-managed a special situation hedge fund in San Francisco for many years that invested in more than 500 small cap financings. It was uh, was a lot of work over the course of many years. And I, I literally met with hundreds of companies and had probably a dozen plus notebooks full of repetitive observations uh, about small cap management teams and, and governance practices and the challenges that that these companies routinely faced and and one of the one of the principal takeaways I'd say from my lengthy institutional investing tenure and also my subsequent experience governing and advising small cap boards is that no matter what anyone tells you to the contrary 
uh, and notwithstanding, by the way, uh, in my opinion anyway, how many uh, in the corporate governance community in the United States have dangerously coalesced to this notion, uh, a one-size-fits-all approach to corporate governance doesn't work. Uh, it just doesn't work, and, and, and I don't know how to say it uh, any other way, frankly. But governing Apple or governing Chevron is just not the same thing at all as governing a $150 million biotech company, for example, full stop. And though it might seem self-evident to those who always nod their heads when I say that all around the country at speaking engagements, that's the way that most corporate governance has been historically taught and conceived in this country, which is governance is governance. If you govern a large company, same thing as governing a small company, and, and it's it's not true at all. And Succinctly, uh, my experience has been that this kind of ubiquitous reliance on the notion of one-size-fits-all corporate governance has hurt uh, generations of shareholders in small public companies. And my uh, cajoling, if you will, the, uh, the governance world over the last five years since retiring from investing has been uh, an attempt to uh, level the proverbial playing field in that regard. Uh, and provide a framework for small-cap directors to analyze the unique challenges they face since the corporate governance community uh, historically, frankly, has overlooked the distinction. And many uh, many of the unique challenges that small-cap directors face uh, over and over again, as you and I have discussed, kind of fit within the categories of capital markets and, and corporate finance, which is uh, our conversation today. And, and I just... I just saw so many small cap management teams and boards struggle with those unique issues over and over and over again. And I figured out after concluding my investing career that, that amazingly there was nowhere for these C-suites and directors to go to get objective answers to their unique questions. And, and that was really the goal of, uh, of writing the book. I'm certainly humbled that it's been ranked in the top 10 of a number of categories over the last couple of years on Amazon. And, and fortunately, uh, as a result of, of writing the book and, and speaking about it around the country, lots of constructive dialogue uh, it's created, uh, which is a good thing. There are now many more resources available than previously for, for officers and directors of small uh, public companies. For example, you, you referenced NACD. NACD, NACD uh, pardon me, puts on some terrific continuing education programs for small-cap directors now that, that never existed. Uh, the leading governance magazine in the United States, which United States, which is Directorship Magazine, now has uh, small cap specific content, which of course it never did. And and Nasdaq uh, has a groundbreaking new uh, content initiative called Amplify, uh, that's available exclusively to Nasdaq issuers uh, and is focused on the unique challenges faced by micro and small cap companies. And I'm proud that they've asked me to to be an ongoing contributor to Amplify. So I guess I'd I'd probably summarize by saying that they're have been a lot of great strides uh, made, but there's a lot more left to uh, to accomplish, Hannah. That's wonderful, and I'm, I'm so glad that you've put the conversation on the agenda for people so they're starting to pay attention to it. As mentioned during our introduction, you're a strong believer that so many of the challenges companies face in their post-IPO financing is rooted in pre-IPO mistakes. Can you help me understand how that happens? What's the connection? Well, it's it's a great it's a great uh, uh, question, Hannah. And it's too bad that uh, this conversation doesn't take place more regularly in, in pre-IPO boardrooms. Particularly, venture-backed IPO candidates are often fixated with hiring Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, <clears throat> pardon me, and J.P. Morgan. And there's certainly nothing wrong with those banks. Of course, they are global leaders for a reason. Uh, but 
Here's the thing the, the lion's share of pre-IPO companies miss, and they miss it because there's typically limited capital markets experience either on these boards or in C-suites. While we hear uh, all the time about the Twitters and the Facebooks, the reality is, is that the median market cap of venture-backed IPO candidates uh, after their IPO is actually only $450 million or so, which means the typical post-IPO company actually hovers on the fence between being a micro and a small cap company. So again, while it's terrific to have the name recognition of the bulge bracket banks in your corner for an IPO, here's the capital market's reality. The way your stock gets quote-unquote sold to investors after an IPO is that institutional salespeople that work together with research analysts, they call their clients, and those clients are institutional investors, whether they manage uh, mutual funds or hedge funds, and they try and interest them in buying the stock in conjunction with their research recommendations. In other words, they call a company and say, we're calling about company ABC. We have a buy recommendation on it. Here are the three reasons why we think you should own the stock. But here's the problem. If you look at all the companies under coverage at bulge bracket banks, uh, the median market cap of those companies is in the many billions of dollars. In other words, their clients, quote-unquote, these institutional investors, are interested in buying stocks of large companies. Uh, and when the bulge bracket banks cover your little company, there are very, very, very few clients for them to call to interest in your stock because very, very, very few institutional clients of bulge bracket banks, i.e. mutual fund managers and hedge fund managers, ever buy stocks in little companies. So that's why you need to make sure that if you're going to include the likes of Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, etc., on your IPO cover, uh, that you also make room for some much smaller banks. Why? Because the median market cap of their research universe looks much more like your little company, uh, and they in turn actually have clients uh, to call to sell your stock to. So again, Hannah, the main culprit here is a lack of capital markets expertise, uh, true capital markets expertise in these C-suites uh, and boards. And just to be clear about what happens when companies get this wrong, which unfortunately they routinely do, is that your company is going to join the enormous ranks of what investors kind of euphemistically call orphaned IPO companies. And these companies end up with depressed stock prices, low trading volume, little institutional ownership, and very high cost of capital. So the takeaway here is pretty simple. If you're hiring an investment bank because of the research coverage for your IPO that's likely going to ensue, make sure that the median market cap of their coverage universe matches up with your company. Interesting. Classic supply and demand, right? And make sure there's a good match. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, we remember from the financial crisis how much emphasis was placed on the fact that Lehman Brothers, for example, had no derivatives experts on their board, yet derivatives were a central enterprise risk for them. Is board composition at the root of post-IPM financing challenges for small and mid-cap companies? Well, the short answer is yes. <laughs> Just to set the perspectives, Hannah, something like 80%, the real number is 76 or 77%, but for our purposes today, 80% of U.S. public companies actually have market caps below $500 million. And just to be clear with all the listeners what market cap means, market cap is multiplying the issued and outstanding shares by the trading price of the stock. And, and just for comparison purposes, General Electric has a market cap of approximately $275 billion, with a B. 
uh, yet the the uh, average market cap of 80% of the public companies in the United States is below 500 million with an M. So put differently, wow. you know, the overwhelming majority of public companies are small, despite what we see and hear in the newspapers and on television that are, of course, fixated exclusively on large public companies. And, and what do we know about these smaller public companies? Well, among other things, many of the 80% of companies that have market caps below $500 million just aren't sufficiently cash flow positive to finance their growth, so they require outside capital, sometimes multiple times to get to sustainability. And if you're a life science company, sometimes multiple times within the same year. And small cap companies raise an average of between 35 to $50 billion in growth capital annually. Interestingly, that's a marketplace that some years is larger than the IPO market, even though you never, you never hear about it. Uh, and just to be extra clear, the fundraising activity in this market segment is predominantly not optional, right? It's mandatory. These companies are going to run out of money if they don't go out and raise more uh, equity, equity capital. So, but here, here's the interesting rub, uh, and it's something I noticed repeatedly when I was an institutional investor and certainly in my subsequent experience advising lots of small-cap boards, and that is the following. Serial need for growth capital notwithstanding, the overwhelming majority of small cap boards don't contain corporate finance experts. I mean, think about think about what that means. I mean, the and I'm and I'm certainly happy to speak offline with some of your listeners about why I think this is the case. Uh, I can't overstate this or say it any more clearly that in the thousand plus companies that came to us when I was an institutional investor, and just to be uh, resolutely clear, a hundred percent of those companies required capital. That's why they were coming to us. Well less than 10% of those companies had any capital markets or corporate finance experts on their boards. And, and when you think about that, another institutional investing friend of mine used to say, this would be like starting a company uh, to, uh, uh, to design a new space shuttle and not having any in-house engineers. Right? I mean, that, that's what, what we're really talking about. Uh, and for anybody who, uh, who doubts that this dynamic uh, exists, rest assured, that there is not a single small-cap special situation hedge fund, which is what I did for many years uh, in this country, that doesn't systematically exploit this disconnect, and very profitably so on a daily basis. This is, this is a movie that doesn't end well for shareholders the vast majority of the time. Unfortunately, it happens every business day, sure, as, uh, as day follows night. And, and, and what hap- what's happening is that the vast majority of public companies, again, we're talking about 80% of the public companies in the United States, are routinely either outsourcing at best, or, or I would argue almost abdicating at worst, critical must-have financing decisions to third parties because they don't have capital markets and corporate finance experts on their boards, and, you know, what do you know about these third parties? Well, these third parties uh, are investment banks, and investment banks are absolutely critical to the capital markets uh, ecosystem, and there are some terrific uh, investment banks and bankers uh, in the small-cap space. But there's, there's a manifest conflict of interest with investment banks, and that is investment banks only get paid if a company does their deal. So the reality is, again, there's a systemic outsourcing or abdicating of uh, must-have financing decisions to third parties that have a manifest conflict of interest. And, and it has to change. And, you know, my takeaway, Hannah, is that I will continue to talk about it and write about it until it does. <laughs> well, I think you're going to be having a lot to write about for a long time because, you know, who knew they were abdicating to people who have a conflict of interest. They may not realize they have such a blatant conflict of interest. I mean, it's really fascinating. Really, who yeah, knew? Yeah, I think you're right. 
I think you're right. You, you, spend, you spend quite a bit of time in your book discussing something that most of our listeners, and besides what you just mentioned, probably haven't thought about, and that's the failure of most C-suites and boards to utilize historic deal data to optimize their financing results. Could you explain what you mean by historic deal data and why they're so important? Yeah, you know, particularly as it pertains to financings, uh, every officer and director of of a small public company that regularly needs external growth capital really needs to be a student of history, Hannah. And why? Because financings don't happen in a vacuum. The financing terms that a small public company is most likely to garner are likely quite similar to financing terms recently offered to a substantially similar peer company. And when I say substantially similar, I'm referring to the industry they're in, the market cap, the trading volume, etc. So first, you know, what what is historic deal data? Information about the amount of money raised by a public company and all the specific terms of that financing, all of that's public record from SEC filings. And there are various different vendors out there that have aggregated those data and put them in searchable format. And And interestingly, these data are religiously parsed by investment bankers and investors. Uh, yet interestingly, uh, and after investing in more than 500 small cap financings as an institutional investor and advising dozens of boards, I can tell you that I've literally never come across a single company that analyzes these historic deal data, which, by the way, is available to anybody for a small annual fee. So I, I refer to data uh, data, this historic deal data, are, are the, the elephant in the room, if you will, for small public companies that regularly need capital because those data enable anybody to know exactly what terms similarly situated companies are garnering out there in the marketplace. And without those data, I mean, t- the, the takeaways are that without those data, you're either guessing at the terms that your company is likely to get or you're relying on the word of somebody else. And companies needn't, and by the way, shouldn't, be doing either of those things. Guessing. That's a scary thing, especially since so much of the business future is hinging on that. And you mentioned that this historic deal data is available to anyone for a small annual fee. If I was looking for that kind of data, where would I go to find that? Yeah, you can go. There's companies. There's one company called uh, Private Raise. That's probably one of the most uh, substantial ones. And they have data, again, for, for almost every, uh, every one of those financings that was done in the 30 to $50 billion worth uh, over the last year. You can go and search by company. You can go and search by uh, all the different types of deal structures, et cetera. It's all, it's all there laid out in a really user-friendly format. In my book, I, I mentioned there's, there's a number of others uh, as well. Terrific. That's really valuable. Now, anyone who's heard you speak around the country knows that you feel like most small and mid-cap companies lack the right processes to choose an investment bank that's best for them. And, you know, even in your prior discussion here with us, you, you kind of mentioned that about the, you know, the big marquee names. Now, what are the, some of the common mistakes that companies make in choosing an investment bank, and why does it matter? Well, I think, unfortunately, we don't have nearly enough time to talk about the continuum of horrific mistakes that small public companies make uh, in selecting investment banks, but I'll, but I'll touch on, on a few of them. First, first and foremost, you know, the, the decision to hire an investment bank should always be quantitative, not qualitative. You know, the decision to hire an investment bank should always be quantitative, not qualitative. And unfortunately, it rarely is. And, and, and by the way, bankers make it hard on companies to be quantitative because amazingly, 
Uh, and Hannah, I've never seen a investment banking present, uh, PowerPoint presentation that doesn't show that an investment bank is somehow number one at something. I don't know where number two and three and four are, uh, but investment banks are always number one at something. And, and I've never figured out how everyone could be number one. But in any event, I think if you're going to ask one seminal question about which bank is best for your company, it should be the following. What investment bank has the most recent relevant, successful experience in raising money for a company that looks and feels like your company. More specifically, which bank has recently raised the amount of money that your company is looking for using the structure that you believe is most likely, and that is going to come from historic deal data, by the way, going back to our our prior uh, comments, for a company that looks and feels like your company. That's the starting point, Hannah, and that question again, relying on historic deal data, will usually depict a handful of investment banks. And thereafter, you need to analyze the recent similar financings for companies like yours and see which one of those banks seems to be able to raise money on the least dilutive terms. And there's always going to be one or two that seem to garner less dilutive terms for their clients, the companies, than their competitors. And that's where companies should start. Are there good reasons to deviate from the methodology? There's not too many good reasons. There's a few times that it's probably okay to deviate from that methodology. Number one, you know, sometimes there are companies that are pretty keen on getting research coverage from a particular analyst because they hold a lot of sway within an industry. That certainly could be a worthwhile reason to deviate from the methodology. Again, hearkening back to the earlier conversation, you need to make sure that the median market cap of companies under coverage by that analyst look and feel like your company. Another reason why you may deviate from the methodology, sometimes the targeted investment bank may not have a lot of interest in working with you uh, or your company, or they might be too busy, in which case you have no choice but to pursue another bank. And last, I'd say sometimes the bank itself might be keen on a relationship, but the particular banker at that firm that has all the experience isn't available. And and you and I, Hannah, know from our experience in the law business that just like law firms, investment banks are only as good as the person who's working on, on your account. So unfortunately, I'd say that the quantitative approach is hardly ever used. Companies instead default to any banker that's either shown interest in them, maybe the bank that appears to be the biggest or have the best or splashiest investor conferences or uh, the banker that the company has always used. And look, you might get a great banker using that methodology, but you probably won't in my experience. So, you know, I think I think to recap, uh, Hannah, the choice of what banker to use ultimately has to be data-driven. The data not the investment bankers' PowerPoint slides, by the way, <laughs> but, but the historic deal data show the best bank for your company is the bank that has recent relevant experience uh, undertaking capital raises for companies just like yours and has, dis- has displayed the ability to garner the least dilutive terms. That's, that's the right bank for your company. Perfect. It's not just about following the money. It's about following the smart money to help you with your financing. I love it. I love it. Adam, actually, for any listener who's just joined in and and Adam's talking about a book, his book, if you're just tuning in, is called The Perfect Corporate Board, a handbook for mastering the unique challenges of small cap companies. That's what we're talking about here. And actually, one of the most fascinating sections of your book is the importance of trading volume to small and mid-cap financing results. And I just love the one chapter you call volume, volume, volume. It reminds me of, you know, realtors saying location, location, location. It's so important. Can you help us understand why it's so important and common misunderstandings about trading volumes? 
Sure. You know, and I agree, Anna, if location, location, location is everything for retail, which it is, then volume, volume, volume is definitely everything for smaller public companies, particularly those that require regular access to the equity capital markets. Trading volume does a lot of things for smaller public companies that larger public companies take for granted. Trading volume makes financings less dilutive and makes them possible, frankly. It makes institutional sponsorship possible, meaning the ability for institutional investors to own your stock and also to get sell-side research coverage. Trading volume enables use of stock for for M&A situations. In other words, if you're trying to use your stock to buy another company, no other company is going to want your stock if it never trades because they're never going to be able to monetize the stock. Uh, and trading volume enables employees and uh, all the officers and directors to monetize stock options. So a lot of people forget unless they get into a situation with a smaller public company that if your stock doesn't trade, then all the stock options that you have aren't worth terribly much if you can ever sell them. Uh, and so trading volume is really, I think, the, the best way to look at it is that trading volume is tantamount to uh, alternatives for the vast majority of smaller public companies, since many of them, as we talked about earlier, serially require access to the equity capital markets. Again, just to handicap the size of what we're talking about, it's a 30 to $50 billion marketplace. In some years, again, larger, even larger than the IPO market. So this is a large number of companies that we're talking about. And for those companies, volume is really tantamount to alternatives for those companies. And trading volume is so important that I've actually argued in, in a number of speaking engagements and investor conferences and corporate governance events that trading volume is so important to a lot of small public companies that it should really be viewed by a lot of these companies as an enterprise risk, frankly, uh, along the lines of things like cybersecurity. And why? Well, if you require access to the equity capital markets and you have no trading volume, you might very well run out of money. And so that certainly quantifies as an enterprise risk. The biggest misunderstanding, I think, about trading volume, and I run into this all the time with boards that I advise and certainly when I was an institutional investor, is where trading volume comes from. And it's actually, and this is something that until I wrote the book and began speaking about it, it's amazing that it just doesn't get discussed very often, uh, notwithstanding that we're talking about something that the lion's share of public companies face. Trading volume comes from retail investors. Uh, in other words, non-professional investors, Mary and Johnny and Naperville, Illinois, that are buying stock for their maybe their son or daughter's uh, college fund. Uh, that's where trading volume comes from. And that supplies, at some point, sufficient enough volume to enable institutional investors to trade the stock. It's not the other way around. And one of the things that very few people understand is the math that's associated with it. Small public companies waste an unbelievable amount of time and money annually running around trying to interest institutional investors to buy their stock when they are literally mathematically foreclosed from purchasing it. Uh, and in my experience, less than one out of ten small public company CEOs or board members understand the math. So I'm just going to give you a really simple example because this is something, again, that's so poorly understood out there and results in so much money and time being wasted. If you think about a typical hedge fund that maybe needs to invest a million dollars in a company, and the reason why they would have a minimum position size is because if you're a certain size fund, if you invest a too tiny an increment of money, even if the stock goes up by 10x, it's not going to move the needle for your fund. So say a particular hedge fund needs to uh, invest a million dollars in a given position. If you have a company whose stock trades about $50,000 a day, not shares, but dollars, so if you take the amount of shares that are traded every day and you multiply that by your stock price, that's how many dollars of your stock are traded every day. Say you have a stock that trades $50,000 a day. So institutional investors 
don't ever want to accumulate any more than about 10% of a given small public company stock on a given day, because if they do that, they're going to push the stock price up. If you do the math very easily, uh, an investor in this company could only accumulate about $5,000 of that company's stock a day, or 10% of $50,000. And since a fund will rarely take more than about 10 or 15 days to accumulate their position, they would only be able to purchase about $75,000 of this company's stock, whereas they really need to own a million dollars. So they're not even close. And so in other words, they're not even going to try. So just to sum up, Hannah, you know, trading volume is absolutely critical for smaller public companies that need regular access to the equity capital markets. And it's the section of the book that I most routinely get thanked for, that's for sure. It's, uh, it's something that uh, unfortunately is just really poorly understood. Well, I'm glad that you can clarify that. And for listeners who want to find your book and read it so they too can be informed, where can they find it? Fortunately, it's available with just a couple of clicks on uh, on Amazon.com. That's where I think the lion's share of readers get it from. I'm, I, I believe it's also available from, uh, from Barnes & Noble as well online. And uh, there are certainly Barnes & Noble stores where I've seen it for sale physically for those of you like me who actually like going to a bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like browsing through the books myself. Actually, you do something very interesting with the royalties from this book, Adam. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I, I donate my royalties to a charity that, in my opinion, does a terrific job of helping U.S. veterans and their family called Fisher House Foundation. There's almost two dozen U.S. veterans a day that commit suicide in the United States, and none of us can possibly feel good about that or the way that we treat veterans in the United States. So I felt compelled to, uh, to donate all the royalties to a charity that at least tries to help. So I appreciate you asking. I think it speaks a lot to your generous heart, and, and our listeners definitely need to know that because you've just given us so much here, and this is another way of giving back, and I, I really I value that. I value you, I value your expertise and advice. And just have one last question in closing. Do you have any parting thoughts or advice for our listeners? Yeah, you know, thanks, Anne. I, I'd like to just underscore that if your company is going to need access to the equity capital markets, then put somebody, put somebody with recent relevant capital markets and corporate finance experience on your board. And when I say relevant, uh, if you're a $400 million company, getting somebody who has mostly served on the boards of $200 billion companies is not going to be terribly relevant. So get someone with recent relevant capital markets and corporate finance experience and put them on your board. The vast majority of small cap companies in the United States think that they know how to finance their companies. And I can tell you, Hannah, and I can speak to, to all of your listeners and say resolutely that from uh, a buy side perspective, that absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. Hedge funds absolutely run circles around small cap companies 365 days a year and it shouldn't be this way, and it needn't be this way. Small cap companies are the chief source of jobs and the chief source, chief source of innovation in this country, and they're constantly undertaking needlessly dilutive and poorly conceived financings, and this needs to change, and I'm going to continue to do my best to help. And you know, to you, Hannah, thanks so much for, for having me and for facilitating a discussion about these issues that are really important to the U.S. economy. My pleasure. My pleasure. I and mean, to me, that's what this program, Business Confidential, is all about, the things that people, unfortunately, have to learn through the school of hard knocks. And I hate that because that's just such a waste of time and resources. I want to be able to cut through it, and that's why I really loved having you here today. Thank you so much. 
lots of sound tips from our corporate governance expert. I mean, who knew about people blindly going to these conflicts of interest like this? That one blew, blew me away today, Adam, i got to tell you. I mean, that's like playing Russian roulette with your future. Giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. Thank you for joining me today on Business Confidential Now. You can get more information about today's guest and the resources we mentioned during today's show in the episode notes that are located on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. Sometimes we even include some bonuses and goodies, so be sure to check it out. That website again is businessconfidentialradio.com. And also don't forget to subscribe to the show. That is the easiest way to keep up with the show and our guests, those thought leaders, experts, and authors who are transforming businesses behind closed doors around the world. Let them help you, too. Subscribe today for easy access to the business information you need to succeed. You know, the reason we call the show Business Confidential now is because you don't have time to wait. So just do it. Subscribe now and leave a review. We want to hear from you. We want you to be part of our growing Business Confidential Now family. Tell your friends and colleagues so they can subscribe too. Because the more subscribers we have, the more great guests we can bring you. And the more business intelligence you'll have available to ignite and fuel your continued business success. Have an idea or a topic, a guest that you'd like to hear on Business Confidential Now? Contact me at the website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media, too. We'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more of the business intelligence and inside scoop you need to succeed. Till then.